opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening. Welcome to the inaugural call, the inaugural meeting of a a new program we are calling To Mobility and Beyond. My name is Ron Brooks. I am a member of ACB for a really long time, a resident of Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I'm sitting today. It's a beautiful 111 degrees here late in the afternoon. And I want to thank all of you for joining us uh, via our Zoom call and via ACB radio. Thank you for being here. This is a new uh, call that we have uh, established to talk about environmental access, transportation. Those are two related topics. I think most of us who are blind or visually impaired know that when blind and visually impaired people are surveyed about the barriers to participation, transportation and and access to the community usually rank in a very dubious place, high, like one or two. So this is an important issue. And we had a four-day workshop during our conference in July, our virtual conference, where we looked at these issues uh, in some detail. We talked about things like the ADA and public transportation and paratransit and, and, and pedestrian access and all those related issues. And one of the things we heard from many of you is that We need to talk more about these issues. We need to create opportunities for people to learn more, to ask questions, to get answers to their questions, to share their experiences, and to get assistance as they advocate within their communities. So that's what this is. And this is the first one. This is our inaugural call. You are on the ground floor of what I hope will be uh, a long and constructive and productive set of conversations. We will do this every month. And we're still kind of landing on what the schedule looks like for month in and month out, but we're starting here. And I'm glad that you are with us. We have some really good speakers that I want to get to quickly, but let me just first introduce a couple of people and let them have a chance to say hello. I want to acknowledge the committees that are responsible for this effort. And we have the chairs of those committees. First, the Environmental Access Committee. Uh, Becky Davidson is the chair of that committee. Uh, She uh, lives now in North Carolina, uh, formerly from New York. And she has been an advocate for environmental access issues for a long time. We also have Sheila Styron, who is chair of the Transportation Committee. Uh, Sheila, originally from California, moved to Kansas City has been an amazing advocate in the transportation space in the Kansas City area for a number of years. So ladies, if you would like to just say hello, Becky, if you want to start, just say a few words. Sure. Thanks, Ron. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, Yeah, I just, on behalf of the Environmental Access Committee, I just want to thank everyone for being here. And we're really excited about the opportunities that these calls bring to us. And uh, we'll all get to know each other better as as we move on through these calls. But I just wanted to say hello and thank you. Thank you. Sheila? Currently unmuted. Hi, I'm Sheila, transportation chair, and I don't have my headphone on, so sorry about that. Um, I 
am really happy to be here. Transportation is a huge issue in my life. Um, I am currently dealing with uh, the issue of um, our leadership team where I work at a center for independent living thinks we need to be there. So I'm dealing with um, you know, the efficacy and the safety of taking buses. I've decided it's okay in the morning because there har- hardly is anybody there. And so I'm, I'm trying to make other arrangements for the end of the day. And we all have really extenuating circumstances having to do with the pandemic that we're all living through. And we need to pay special attention to transportation and environmental access issues moving forward because we know funding is going to be disappearing and things are a little scary right now. And so I'm glad those of you who are here are here. And I'm really looking forward to the wisdom and experience that our speakers are going to share with us tonight. Thank you. And before I introduce one more person, I just want to point out, I'd like to introduce Mr. Jaws. You may hear him from time to time, and um, he, he joins us regularly, and he is not a shark. Um, he is a screen reader, but that's okay. Um, I also want to introduce, um, point out that, that Sheila has brought a new word to the English language, which those of us who are blind and visually impaired travelers know very well. The word is extenuating. It is a combination of strenuous and extenuating and boy, that sounds like travel uh, in, for many of us. So thank you, Sheila, for that uh, piece Her of um, literary for, history. For, for giving me for that. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to introduce one more person before we jump in, and that is Karen Gorgie. She is my co-host tonight, and you'll be hearing more from her as we go. I don't know Karen super well, but I do know that she lives in New York City. She uh, is a member of the New York City chapter and also the New York, uh, the, uh, New York State Affiliate, the Environmental Access Committee. She has been a transit advocate in New York City for, uh, for a long time. She told me since the 80s. Um, so that, that's a long time. She's got a lot of experience. And New York City has been ground zero in a lot of advocacy conversations in the transportation and environmental access space. So she uh, has some amazing experience as well. So, Karen, would you like to say a few words? Uh, Sure. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. So, hello, everybody. Ron told you everything I was going to say. I'm very excited to be here. I'm I'm thankful to Ron for inviting me to come and and, uh, join this this team for tonight. And, yeah, I do live in New York City, right in Manhattan, right in the middle of all the craziness. And uh, I have been doing advocacy for transit and for travel in general um, ever since we made uh, tactile maps of the New York City subway system when I worked at Brew College and uh, then working nationally when get, trying to get detectable warnings implemented was a big thing. I was pretty involved with that. And so it continues. And now I work with a coalition of groups all called PASS for pedestrians for accessible and safe streets. And we're continuing to work on trying to make sure the environment in New York City, the cra- this crazy place, is, is safe and accessible for everybody. And that's a, like a lifelong task, I think. So that's about it for me for now. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, what a great set of experiences. I've actually read those maps. Um, I had a copy once a long time ago, and that is so cool. So, all right, without further ado, 
you, I would like to just introduce, we are so fortunate to have two speakers who are, when you talk about ADA, transportation, paratransit, and the transit's response to uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we could not have two better speakers that I can think of. Maybe they could, and if they can, they, they shouldn't tell me, but <laughs> I can't think of anybody better. Um, so first, I'd like to introduce Dawn Sweet. Dawn joined the Federal Transit Administration in 2009. Uh, she serves as the Director of Headquarters Operation for the Office of Civil Rights in Washington, D.C. Now, the Office of Civil Rights is responsible for making sure that FTA uh, federal uh, recipients, these are people that received uh, transit funding, which is basically transit agencies across the country, that they comply with the ADA, with the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and with Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program, which is a, a program inside of uh, federal uh, programs to uh, encourage small um, and dis, uh, disadvantaged businesses, minority businesses, and the like to uh, be able to participate in, in federal uh, programs. Um, she and her team do this through things like compliance audits and uh, compliance reviews, uh, through issuance of guidance, through findings, uh, and through responses to uh, customer complaints. Pr prior to join, uh, taking on the role of leading her team, uh, she was one of the, uh, the chief architects and authors of the um, FTA's ADA guidance issued. It's a circular it's called, um, that was issued in 2015. This is now really the standard for transit compliance with ADA. So she is really, really well-versed um, in the you know, ADA and, and the transit agency's requirements. And currently, she is responsible for the FTA's guidance to transit agencies uh, on all things related to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So our second speaker is John Day. John serves as the program manager uh, for policy and technical assistance for the Federal Transit Administration uh, within civil rights. I'm sorry, within uh, the civil rights within FTA. Um, he began uh, his career as a bus driver, um, but he has been working uh, within the Office of Civil Rights since 2001, uh, providing policy development and technical assistance. Um, so he is really now responsible for um, overseeing um, the compliance review process, and, and he is responsible for a great deal of the, of the guidance that gets issued or, or provided to transit agencies around ADA compliance. So these are two folks who really, really know the subject uh, because they work in it every single day. So we, um, in talking with our speakers, rather than asking them to give a long presentation, they, they wanted us to just jump in with some questions. So I'm going to just start that process, and we will just jump into a couple of questions here. And let me get to my list. And the first question I'm going to give is to Don. So Don, um, and actually you guys can decide how you want to handle these questions, whether you want to each take turns or just pass them back and forth or however you want to go. Um, first question is just to set the stage, if you could just talk about the FTA um, and the work you do within civil rights. I summarized it, but if you could just talk a little bit more about how that looks on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you, Ron. And I'm going to pass the question off to John to, 
to have him introduce our, our office since he's been with us since, uh, I think you said, uh, was it early uh, 2000s. So, but I, I, I first want to thank you, Ron, and the American Council of the Blind for this opportunity. Um, the public is our, our main customer at, at, at FTA, and we really appreciate events like this to showcase our work, um, our intense commitment to civil rights, and the resources that we can offer to ensure that transit remains as accessible as possible to people with disabilities. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to John first. All right, thanks. There's something going on outside my window. I don't know if you can overhear that or not, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so uh, the Federal Transit Administration is one of several modal administrations within the U.S. Department of Transportation. Um, the Federal Aviation Administration takes care of aviation. Federal Highways takes care of highways pipelines and hazardous materials, you get the idea. Um, so as the Federal Transit Administration, we're responsible for um, um, basically our, our original mission was to provide funding for public transportation systems. But as things have evolved over time, uh, we're also now more and more responsible as an agency for oversight of compliance by those transportation systems uh, with federal requirements. Some of those requirements go along with the federal funding. Some apply like the ADA independent of any federal funding. Um, and in the Office of Civil Rights, um, we're responsible for overseeing compliance with federal civil rights laws, including the ADA. Um, and one of the things that we come up with a lot is that um, we, we can only require people to comply with the minimum legal requirements that are imposed upon them, you know, uh, by statute or by regulation. Um, we can't require them to do something uh, beyond those minimum requirements as much as we sometimes might want to. Um, for example, we, we can't order a transit system to go beyond the minimum service area for paratransit. Um, they can do that if they want. We cannot force them to do that. Um, and I know paratransit is often described as, you know, Springfield's transit system for people with disabilities. Um, but that's really not accurate. Um, Springfield's transit system for people with disabilities is the same as Springfield's transit system for everybody, um, which is the fixed route bus or rail system. Um, there's there, which is obviously required to be accessible and has been for the last 30 years. So there's no separate but equal under the ADA. We kind of tried that and failed in the 1980s. There's a whole backstory that I won't get into. Um, but paratransit basically functions as a safety net for people whose disabilities prevent them from using the accessible fixed route system. Um, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system of transportation meeting all of the travel needs of all people with all disabilities all the time. And that's why, um, you know, when we look into these issues, um, you know, we, we have to look at the minimum requirements, such as the service criteria that were established to mirror the service that's available by the fixed route system. Um, the eligibility that's limited to people whose disabilities actually prevent them from using the fixed route system. Um, so those are some, sort of the, the, the highlights and the limitations of, of the sort of things we get involved in. Um, we, 
do as an agency, we evaluate every transit system in the country every three years for compliance with federal requirements, including the ADA. And the ADA is one of the largest parts of the triennial review process. It by far generates the most findings. Um, but in addition to that, our office conducts a number of specialized compliance reviews across all four areas of civil rights, uh, ADA, DBE, uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Equal Employment Opportunity. Um, and ADA, of course, covers paratransit and fixed route, including stop announcements, um, which are required at transfer points, major intersections, um, intervals sufficient to orient the rider to the location, and any stop upon request. So these are the sorts of things that we look at um, when we go out in the field and uh, do these uh, these sorts of reviews. Um, so I, I, I don't know how that is in terms of an overview, but um, you know that's 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 our function in a nutshell. Wow. So that that's pretty much. And Dawn, you don't have anything to add to that? I don't think for that first question. I no. I think uh, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Great. So um, I wanted to move on to our next question, which is, how has your focus changed with the uh, emergence of everybody's favorite sport, uh, COVID-19? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take, yeah, I'll take this Sheila, one. And am I allowed to ask a question at this point? No. <laughs> no? No. Okay. <laughs> we sort of had a plan. <laughs> but you will get your chance for sure. Yeah. All right, so we're going to talk uh, COVID nineteen, and and I think you're you're right. Everyone's favorite topic, at least it's the topic that's on our mind twenty four seven. I'll say, like many, I I, I feel that our work changed um, suddenly, um, almost overnight, uh, and uh, drastically um, as soon as the outbreak um, occurred. Um, the transit industry was hit especially hard, uh, more than many segments. Uh, of our economy, so people started, you know, staying home and, fortunately, um, listening to directions to uh, self quarantine. Those of us who could, who aren't from like frontline workers, like transit employees, could stay home and and telework and and not commute into the office. So what this meant, though, was that transit use dropped dramatically across the board. So uh, fixed route uh, bus and rail, ADA paratransit, and general public demand response, which is the demand response service that's run in a lot of uh, especially smaller communities. Um, transit systems, um, all of the top ones cut service uh, frequency as a result. Um, it's now being slowly restored to pre-pandemic levels in some communities. So we're fortunate in uh, Washington, D.C., where John and I live, that uh, WMATA is coming back uh, in full force. Um, but the recovery naturally varies uh, considerably um, across the nation, uh, depending on local conditions. So in the Office of Civil Rights, in response to, to all of this in, in March, we um, set up an internal COVID-19 external response team to coordinate all of our um, COVID-related work and to support um, FTA's charge to help the industry in its recovery, while also, um, importantly, 
um, ensuring that the public's civil rights are protected during this really unprecedented, unchartered time. So as an agency, FTA was tasked with allocating um, $25 billion to transit operators under the CARES Act, which is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, so that they could continue um, service um, in, a, in a safe way, just to keep it going, keep their staff paid. Um, and the president signed the CARES Act in late uh, March. So we supported the agency's effort to get those funds out quickly. We um, devoted, you know, considerable staff effort to making sure that um, all the civil rights documentation and our concurrence for grants uh, were in place so that we could get the dollars on the ground because we, you know, of course recognize that, you know, if there's no transit operating, then it, it doesn't matter how accessible that service was or how accessible it, it looks um, on paper. So once we got through the, the, the CARES push, then we um, directed even more of our focus to providing uh, technical assistance and, and guidance to the transit in industry and how to ensure uh, ADA compliance um, and adhere to the, the ADA regulations during this uh, very difficult time. John, anything to, to add? Uh, not for me. It's astounding. It's such a lot of work. Well, and I'm going to yeah. dive in. Yeah, I'm going to dive in with a little bit more detail here. So, um, and Don, I'll just I'll start with you again if you want to uh, pass it off. What are the top ADA issues or questions uh, that have been raised during this health emergency, and what kind of guidance has FTA issued? Yeah, and I'll, I'll take this one. It's it's really a you know a continuation of the 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 the, the last question, and so it's an opportunity for me to provide a little more detail. So so one of the the big projects for our external response team has been the development of official vetted um, FAQs, and those FAQs constitute the main guidance that we've given across FTA um, on uh, the COVID outbreak. So on FTA's coronavirus webpage you'll find the FAQs that um, were developed by uh, the Office of Civil Rights and all of the other FTA program offices. And you can you know, easily Google uh, Federal Transit Coronavirus and find that, or it's at www.transit.dot.gov slash coronavirus. So we drafted um, 18 uh, civil rights FAQs based on the individual questions that the transit agencies were sending us. Um, there are definitely some patterns in those questions that we saw. So you'll see, if you look at the ADA FAQs, a, a few themes that are important. And I, I would say the first one is that the ADA requirements have not been waived during this event. And this is something that we're very uh, proud of as an agency. Um, everything that applied to transit in February still applies today. So I think that's, that's a very important message that we want to convey. Um, another theme, the second theme um, that you would see is our messaging of the importance for transit agencies to ensure that there is parity in how people with and without disabilities are treated and comparability between fixed route and paratransit. So it's very, very important um, for us, for the transit industry. Um, I know for the advocacy community that people with disabilities are not disproportionately negatively affected by any changes to policies and practices due to COVID. So 
turning to just a, I want to highlight just a few of the FAQs. Um, and the, the number one question that we received, um, especially early on, immediately, um, which is addressed in the third civil rights FAQ that's posted, has been variations of, um, should we deny transit ser service to a person with a disability who is showing signs of COVID, right? They appear symptomatic. You know, what do we do? Can we deny service? And our answer here is that this uh, determination, this decision-making process should not be based on any disability-related factors, right? The, the, the message here is that this is not a disability issue. So the FAQ explains that a transit agency should contact local and state public health officials, right, because the conditions do vary so much on the ground, to determine under what circumstances service may be denied to any transit rider, regardless of whether they have a disability. Again, disability should not come into play here. Um, Another FAQ that I want to highlight for, for for your group in particular is um, the the FAQ on rear door boarding policies on fixed route bus. So um, New York, uh, DC, um, the large systems, small systems around the country um, started requiring riders very early on to board the bus through the rear door, the middle door, keeping the front door closed to minimize the interaction between the operator and the passenger at the fare box to uh, provide social distancing. So the challenge from an ADA perspective with these policies, of course, is that the ramp um, is usually at the front. So this FAQ explains that um, the policy is fine. You know, we think it's, it's reasonable, it's understandable, but we note that the operators need to open the front door and deploy the ramp for anyone who needs it. Uh, you know, it's obviously going to be for, for wheelchair users, uh, but the regulations are clear that, that the ramp also needs to be deployed for um, standees who can't climb steps who use walkers. But we went beyond um, the ramp issue here, and in the FAQ, we explicitly note that persons who are blind uh, may require the announcement of the route number um, to identify the correct bus to board. So I think John briefly mentioned uh, stop announcements and route ID, but the ADA requires at bus stops where there are multiple routes for there to be a route ID performed and that sometimes the driver um, opens the door and, you know, verbally announces that route number. Um, sometimes um, the um, announcement is done automatically, um, but we used this FAQ as an opportunity to, 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 telegraph to the industry that the root ID is also an issue and it also needs to be performed during this public health emergency. Um, lastly, I'll say um, another um, FAQ that addressed a lot of individual questions that we got um, explains that transit agencies can't limit paratransit trips to essential ones like medical appointments. So as systems reduce service. We got a lot of questions about, well, can we just take people to medical appointments? And, you know, pretty reasonable questions. Um, you know, agency agencies, I think, overwhelmingly just, you know, wanted to make sure people were, you know, getting to dialysis and, and wherever they needed to go. Um, the ADA regulations, though, expressly prohibit trip purpose restrictions on paratransit. Um, 
the idea is that if somebody can take fixed route to go to a park, to go to another venue, then someone on paratransit must be able to do the same. So this goes to the heart of the the comparability theme that is in the um, ADA statute. It's in the DOT um, ADA regulations, and it runs through our FAQs. Very helpful. So um, if we can, for a minute, switching gears from COVID, um, sometimes there can be a feeling in the disability community that the minimum ADA requirements that you referred to um, previously don't provide the level of mobility that's actually needed. And so what's FTA's role in encouraging transit agencies to go above and beyond the ADA? And, and secondly, what can the public do to promote increased mobility options? It's kind of a big bite, but... Well, I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, at its core, the ADA, of course, is a civil rights law. Um, it ensures that people with disabilities have the same rights and responsibilities as basically anybody else. Um, so as such, it makes the transportation system accessible. Um, what it doesn't do is create transportation where it doesn't exist or improve transportation where it doesn't exist. Um, the advocates at the time, um, their mantra was everybody's entitled to the same lousy service. And I think we would take issue with the fact that transit is lousy service, but that was, that was their whole point. We don't want anything that everybody else doesn't already have. We're asking for the same thing. Um, so that's what the ADA does. It's not to necessarily provide the level of mobility somebody may want, but to provide the same level of mobility that's available to everybody else. And, you know, as, as I said before, we can only require compliance with the minimum regulatory and statutory requirements. Um, and the requirements that you find in DOT's ADA regulations were developed by a Federal Advisory Committee Action, or FACA. That's important because that is a rare step that agencies sometimes go through um, when they're doing a major rulemaking and they want a lot of public participation. Usually what happens is the agency will write a rule, they'll publish what's called a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking or NPRM in the Federal Register, wait 60 to 90 days for public comment and go from there. But a Federal Advisory Committee action has specific rules of engagement where you can bring in people from the advocacy community, from the business community, uh, you know, and obviously internal agency people, put them all in a room together and, you know, discuss and decide what direction the rule should go. Um, I was privileged enough to have been in the room when it happened. Um, but, um, you know, that's that was a rather unprecedented step. And the requirements were arrived at by consensus. Um, they didn't fall from the sky fully formed. Um, and after the FACA, there was a notice of proposed rulemaking in the Federal Register for public comment. Um, the Administrative Procedures Act requires that for all rulemakings. Um, and the DOT ADA regs have been amended several times, also uh, with a public notice and comment uh, after a notice of proposed rulemaking. So there's, if you know where to look, if, you know, you're, 
you yourself or your your advocacy organizations are in a position to to have their ear to the ground you know you you can find opportunities to you know comment on proposed regulations before they come final be a part of our participatory democracy um you know as i said under the ADA, we can't create transportation where it doesn't exist. And in fact, uh, the FAST Act, our enabling legislation, um, 49 U.S.C. 5334B, actually prevents the Secretary of Transportation, and by extension us, from regulating the operation routes or schedules of a public transportation or the rates, tolls, fares, rentals, or other charges prescribed by any provider of public transportation. So... You know, in addition to not being able to go beyond the minimum, we're actually actively prevented from saying we want you to do this because it's the right thing to do. We're just, we do not have that power. It's specifically denied us. Now, any administration can make proposals in uh, budget measures that Congress has to pass every year, in authorization measures, uh, which happen every five or six years. The FAST Act is up reauthorization right now. Um, so, you know, you may have heard of proposals by the House that have come out. I'm not sure the Senate has one yet, but the administration will likely have one uh, to try to influence the legislative process. Um, and so you can, in that way, provide, you know, funding for innovative projects, uh, you know, that, that might be a good idea. Um, the department can also file amicus briefs, usually with the Department of Justice, if there's a court case that's relevant to ADA requirements that we're responsible for. We can say to the court, hey, as a friend of the court, when we wrote these regulations, this is what we meant. And the court, you know, we've got, you know, the uh, uh, three branches of government and they are not bound to give us deference, but often they do. So that's some of the things that we can do. And of course, there is nothing at all in DOT's ADA regulations that prevents transit agencies from going above and beyond the minimum requirements. Despite what they may tell you, that is a local decision. Um, Real-time paratransit service is specifically permitted, but it's got to be real-time for all eligible riders. You can't say, well, you're ambulatory, so we'll call you an Uber and pay most of the fare, but you know these people in wheelchairs are going to have to do next-day paratransit service. You can't do that, but you can do real-time service for everybody. You know, And of course, any member of the public can write their congressional delegation a letter, write a letter to the secretary. Um, say, you know, we'd like to see these statutory or regulatory changes and things like that. That's something anyone can do. Um, but probably, as I said at the outset, one of the best things you can do um, is comment on proposed rules. Uh, we haven't been in a rulemaking environment for the last couple of years, so there's not been that much. But you know, this is a participatory democracy and nothing would please me more than to see more people participate. Um, so I'll end with that. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great, um, it's a really helpful comment. And, and, and actually, it's a very good segue um, to a couple of comments. And then I'm going to ask the next question. We just have a couple more questions and we're going to open this up. Be before I ask the next question, though, I do want to comment just on a couple of things. First off, I want to acknowledge 
the FTA. And, and you know, I know you're within Office of Civil Rights, but there are other, you know, certainly groups within FTA that are doing amazing things through some of the funding initiatives that you talked about. And, you know, FTA has really taken a leadership role in helping to spur innovation within the industry. You can't mandate it, but you can put funding out there that's been authorized and included in the transit bill. Um, and the FTA has done a lot through the, uh, and I probably will screw this up, the Office of Program and Research Innovation, um, and to, to create opportunities for the industry to innovate in, in the areas of things like of the use of uh, uh, transportation networking companies uh, and other real-time service delivery approaches for, for paratransit and other services, microtransit, which is basically uh, near real-time uh, flexible transportation uh, within communities. So there's a lot of stuff that actually is being done. It's not mandated, but it's being done uh, and it's being spearheaded and led by the FTA. Um, so th there actually is a lot that is being done, but it's just not something that you can require uh, folks to do because it's not in statute. The one thing I did want to point out from the on the other side, though, is that one of the positions that that I think and you know we are the, the ACB as an organization is starting to think about is the fact that the ADA really uh, in, it creates paratransit, if you will, as the system for folks with disabilities who can't use public transit. One of the positions that the ACB is beginning to uh, take is that that the government provides a, a huge transportation system for the general public, and it's called the road network. And if you look at mode data across the industry, across the country, 95% of people travel by, by, by vehicle, by, by car. Um, they don't travel on public transit. And if that's a system and if that system is being supported by federal funding, which in most places it, it does get federal funding, that's the system that we think people with disabilities who can't use it should be able to have access to. Um, and so there is, you know, I, I, I certainly understand the, the current position that FTA is in, but I think the advocacy community believes that um, when the federal government is, is spending and supporting it and subsidizing an entire transportation network that's not accessible, um, we would like to see accessibility to a, a larger piece of the transportation pie. Um, but, but obviously that's outside of this conversation, but it is a, a conversation that, you know, that we would like to uh, you know, continue to engage with. So another question uh, that we had that we wanted to, to just put out there is we would like to know just kind of what are some of the issues now? What Are there new issues on the uh, disability accessibility front uh, that you all are seeing? And, and if so, what are those issues? Um, well, I guess I'll take this one also. Um, among the many hats I wear, uh, I've also served as the department's liaison to the U.S. Access Board uh, for about 11 years now. Um, so I see a lot of the things that, that they see on the forefront. Um, one of the things that's sort of hopefully in the near term is that um, in 2016, the Access Board, which is the federal agency responsible for um, developing standards for accessibility under the ADA, um, there's there's uh, 12 public members appointed by the president and 12 um, federal member agencies that make up the board itself. And that's the body that decides, you know, how steep a ramp has to be and things like that. Um, 
But in 2016, they issued revised standards for buses and vans. Um, and one of the things that those include are automated stop announcements, because we know from our own you know, oversight activities that when a transit system relies on personnel to make stop announcements, it often doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. Um, so the Access Board decided in 2016 that automated stop announcements would be required for uh, every fixed route bus. Now, those standards don't become enforceable regulations until DOT amends its ADA regulations to adopt them. And as I said, we haven't been in a rulemaking mode for a couple of years. Um, but that's one thing in the near term. But we've also had presentations at the board for some amazing new, like, wayfinding technologies. Um, the Washington Metro system is implementing a pilot project where they're using, like, $20 Bluetooth beacons, and they're putting them throughout certain stations, and they will interact with, you know, a smart device or perhaps a smart cane, which we've also seen um, at the uh, at the board um, to tell you, you know, okay, this escalator takes you down to the blue line. That one takes you up to the surface and the buses are to the right. Things like that. Just, you know, a, a amazing stuff that nobody conceived of 30 years ago. Um, you know, I've, I've, and one of the things they said they can do is that since the beacons are so cheap, they can put a beacon on every bus. They can put a beacon on the bus stop closest to your house, and they'll even put one on your door so that you can use a smart device to, to, to go from your bus to your door or from your door to the bus stop and know which bus to get on. And that's just amazing kind of stuff, assuming it works, and that's what uh, the Washington Metro system is testing out. But it's really got some promise. Um, another... A uh, bit of technology that we saw at the Access Board is what I like to think of as smart paint for crosswalks. It's it's a it's a crosswalk paint that has a substance in it that reacts to a sensor that you can install on your cane. And we've had members of the board who are blind test this out, um, and it'll send you a signal like to a headpiece, or it'll vibrate uh, when the tip of your cane gets close to the edge of the crosswalk, so you know where it is, and you can keep going in a straight line, you know, across the street. And just the implications of that are only beginning to be understood, um, you know, but it's, it's, uh, it's just amazing to see some of these technologies that are coming out. But the big thing that's rattling transit right now, of course, is transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, which, you know, as we all know, are becoming a larger part of urban mobility. Um, they have historically been inaccessible, and that's largely due to the fact that back in 1990, the taxi and livery um, advocacy group got Congress to carve out an exception for them in the ADA, so taxis don't have to be accessible, therefore neither do Uber and Lyft. Um, they can't charge you anymore for having a disability. They can't charge you more than anybody else for having a service animal, but they don't have to have accessible vehicles. Um, you know, we, we still believe that TNCs have the potential to revolutionize demand responsive service delivery, um, including paratransit, but it's got to be done equitably. And we spend a lot of our time, um, uh, ooh, 
I just got an alert that there, my computer's about to sign me out. I hope I can pause that. Um, anyway, um, so it's got to be done equitably. You can't, as I said earlier, presume wheelchair users will simply use paratransit. You've got to provide the same level of service to all riders, including wheelchair users. Um, and interestingly enough, Uber recently acquired um, one of the two primary paratransit scheduling software companies called RouteMatch. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where they take that. Um, and, uh, you know, the. The, the other thing that I've seen personally over the last 30 years, I've, I started in civil rights in 2001, but I've been with FTA since 1989. And I've been involved in every ADA rulemaking that the department has done since the beginning. Um, and 30 years out, many of the transit professionals who were present at the creation have moved on. And the incoming successors are not as versed in the history of how and why the reg works work the way they do, um, why they don't do this, and where they came from, you know, what, what the requirements are for. So we're finding paratransit professionals who are coming to us with questions about why they can't give priority to certain trips or why they can't limit service. They don't understand that you know, transit and particularly paratransit is not a social service, but an integral part of their public transportation system. Um, so those are some of the things that, that we've seen on the horizon, um, you know, mostly positive, some a little questioning. Um, but I think overall, um, you know, we're, we're, we're headed in a good direction. So I'll stop with that. Well. Very, very uh, interesting. Such comprehensive answers, you all. So great. Uh, we have one last question before we open it up, and this brings it right down to the individual level, which is, what should a rider do if the rider thinks that the transit agency is violating the ADA? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, people have a, a, a few different options. We, we do encourage anyone who's having issues with, with transit service to, to first contact their transit agency and give them an opportunity to, to resolve the situation. So they're, they're typically in the best position to follow up with, with any personnel involved. Um, sometimes they have video and, and um, audio on the vehicles. Um, sometimes it's maintained for for a short duration, so it's important to to uh, communicate um, with the agency to file a complaint uh, promptly after the incident. Um, but again, they're 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 in a better position to um, uh, do the investigation. Um, you know, quickly interview people involved, look at any video, and then take any um, action such as you know retraining the the personnel involved if if needed. Um, the DOT ADA regulations have long had a requirement for transit agencies to have a process for resolving disability related complaints, and that's that's. That's pretty much all the um, regs had said um, on the local complaint process until 2015 when DOT significantly, and I think in a, in a really good way, expanded this provision in the regulations to require that transit agencies not only resolve complaints, but actually respond to the complainant, right? So that piece was, was missing. Um, to, to, to a, you know, a great extent. Um, so if you do file a complaint or you know somebody who does file a complaint, um, 
you should be getting a response back from the transit agency, letting you know um, what they've done in response to the, to that complaint. Doesn't necessarily need to be in writing. It it needs to be in a format that the transit agency can can document um, for its reporting, um, partly for its reporting to to FTA during our reviews. You can also, or anyone you know, can file a complaint with with our office, um, especially if the situation um, isn't resolved locally. Um, if it's ongoing, we do prioritize complaints involving a pattern or a practice, um, so repeated issues, um, not isolated operational breakdowns, because all of us with disabilities who, who, who take transit, we know there's an opportunity, you know, every day for something to go wrong, things do happen. Um, so it's helpful for us, for complainants to keep a log of incidents with um, specifics on what happened and, and details such as dates and times and include any communications from their transit agencies. So if anyone, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this, if, if anyone has any questions about um, ADA transit requirements or needs guidance on preparing a complaint, or if you need assistance and accommodation uh, for preparing a complaint, we are, we are here to help and we're one of the few um, agencies to run a toll-free civil rights hotline. Um, so we would definitely, you know, like to, like to hear from you um, with any of your questions. And that number is 888-446-4511. But don't worry about writing it down. You can find more information um, on the hotline, on our complaint process, and on our many ADA resources on our website at www.transit.dot.gov slash ADA. Excellent. And we will be sure to uh, take down some of these numbers and websites and uh, put that back out through the ACB Facebook community and also through our email list so that uh, people can, can get access to that information. So we are at the point now where we're going to open it up. And I know that um, early on, uh, I know Sheila had a question. And so while what I'd like to do is um, give Sheila an opportunity to ask the question that she wanted to ask a little bit earlier, and in the meantime, if you are out in the audience uh, and you are on Zoom and you have a question, um, if you would like to uh, raise your hand um, and um, we have a moderator who um, is available to, uh, and I've kept moderator's name already, which is terrible. Brandon, um, it's fine. Brandon, thanks, Brandon. I'm so sorry. Brandon is here. He will be basically putting you in order. Um, my experience with transportation is we often don't have time to get to all the questions, but we will do as many as we can. Um, and for as long as uh, Dawn and John are available, and I know you guys, um, we thought that we'd be done by 8.30. We may, we may not. So you're welcome to go at 8.30 and you know, we can always capture things and as well. So uh, let me just open it up and start with Sheila. Uh, Sheila, if you wanted to go ahead and, and raise the question you wanted to raise earlier, and then we'll go from there. Thank you, Ron. And I, I really want to thank you and Karen and our presenters for an excellent, very concise presentation. I loved your question format that, you know, allowed the information that we need to hear to get out there. Um, my questions, the first one that came up um, had to do with um, bus announcements. Here in Kansas City, we don't have any transfer announcements. I brought this up at the local level more than once, and we, we really haven't had those. Um, and I'm wondering 
really how, you know, how essential that is under the law, because I haven't been able to fix it. Uh, my second question is another question that was raised by the presenters. Um, um, the issue about uh, people with disabilities being able to use the front door and other people not. And um, that, that question uh, came to another issue for me in that we don't get the bus, we don't get the outside bus announcements until that um, step is moved out and until we've heard the beep, 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 beep and all the noises. And then after all that is done, we get the bus announcement. And I've tried several times at the city level um, to ask them to please take another look at how that is done because it's pretty annoying. Some of us don't need those accommodations and we would like to hear that announcement sooner and then my third question sorry i'm just going to hop in and take advantage of my position and ask um we have which i have read is legal in the regs a complaint process for paratransit here in kansas city that i've read is the minimum um we can only make a complaint by um picking an option on a phone line and leaving a recorded complaint. And then you were only contacted with a complaint um, or re regarding a complaint if they have a question. So people don't even know that their complaints are taken. Therefore, this has led to a situation in Kansas City where um, people just don't complain unless I really, really try hard to get them to do so um, because they don't believe anybody cares about their complaints. In this way, you know, our paratransit people can stand up at meetings and say we have a 91% success rate and, you know, and yada, yada, yada. And it's not true. People just don't complain. And I'll stop now. And thank you again for an excellent, excellent presentation. Okay, thanks. Now I'll start with the the complaint one, just because I, I just talked about um, the complaint process, and then I'll I'll turn it to John because he he hit on um, stop announcements a little more than I did. So um, yeah, so for the the the, the requirement for um, a local complaint process, it is um, it is broad. There are some um, procedural requirements that are are built in, and again. Um, DOT strengthened um, the responsibility in, in 2015. So there's not um, prescriptive language in terms of the exact format that complaints um, have to be accepted in. Um, there is, however, and this was also added um, in 2015, an explicit requirement that that process be accessible to people with disabilities. So, um, I, the, whatever process an agency adopts at the local level, it needs to be it needs to be usable by the community and by people with different uh, um, types of disabilities. So um, I would, you know, if you um, have information to suggest that either the, the process isn't accessible um, or the um, um, you're not getting a response. Uh, both of those would be explicit requirements. Um, we do also look closely, um, John mentioned the triennial review, that's our big um, oversight review that's conducted um, outside of our, uh, from our oversight and safety office. And we do look at um, the local complaint process um, and partly because we have an interest in ensuring that it's strong, right? Because we do want 
uh, local agencies to work with the community and resolve issues and and really to the extent that they can treat the federal process um, as the the last resort or the or the next step when resolution can't be achieved so um, again you, you should make you should have an accessible means and you should be getting a response and if you're not then that would be uh, something that we would want to know more about so with that John okay yeah uh, the first two if I recall had to do with stop announcements and route identification um, so we'll start with stop announcements the regulations do require that stop announcements be made at transfer points major intersections Intervals sufficient to orient a rider to the action and any stop upon request. So that is the minimum regulatory requirement. Um, some transit systems uh, are such that they can announce every stop. Uh, some systems like New York City, uh, there's so many stops that the, you, you wouldn't finish announcing one before you came to the next one. Um, so... What, what we look for, first of all, when we do a review is, are the stop announcements being made? And, and when we do these reviews, we, we don't announce ourselves. Our review team shows up, rides the system, and then has the opening conference with the transit system. They have some idea of the time frame when we're going to be there, but our goal is not to catch them on their best behavior. Um, you know, having said that, um, you know, we, we've come across some systems where they were already using automated enunciators. They were um, announcing every stop, but the stop announcement was being made after the bus passed the stop. So that was no good either. Um, and, and so I, I, I think the first thing you know, all, all of this stuff is supposed to have been developed. You know, there's there's a requirement in the DOT ADA regulations for ongoing public participation. So there should be some sort of a disability advisory committee already. And those folks should be involved in determining things like what is an interval sufficient enough to orient somebody to their location? What is a major intersection? You know, um, uh, things like that. So they should be involved. Um you know, and then if it's not happening, um, you know, for the first thing to do is, you know, make a complaint to the transit agency because if you come to us first, the first thing we're going to do is say, did you give the transit agency a chance to fix it? So, you know, if, if that doesn't fix it, that's when you come to us. And if it's a really egregious situation, the ADA is a civil rights law. An aggrieved individual has an that's that's open right. to someone. Um so uh, that's for stop announcements. Um, for route identification, the basic requirement is to provide a system by which a person can identify, or, to provide a system under which where vehicles for more than one route serve a single stop, uh, someone who can't observe which vehicle is which can identify the correct vehicle to board or be identified as someone seeking to board that bus. Now, remember, these requirements were laid down 30 years ago. We didn't have all the smart technology, so we were kind of leaving it up to the industry and the community to come up with acceptable means of making sure that stop out or uh, route identification announcements are made. Um, so that's, I don't know if that answers the question or not. Um, it it, it yep. does basically. It's just that that question has to do with the fact that 
they have the stop announcements occurring after they already deploy the ramp, the step, the kneeling thing, whatever. I'm not sure what you yeah. call that thing. Well, those, those, are all, those are all local decisions, and that's something that maybe right. the advisory board should bring up and say, uh, look, we'd like to know if it's the right bus before you do all this. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to take too much time on this call, so I have your email, and I will, I'll talk to you a little bit more about it, but there aren't a lot of people who take the buses here because it's difficult, and those of us who do sort of fight an off an uphill battle making these kinds of changes. So uh, I'll email you privately and, and get some more tips to see because I have addressed this issue with them and there isn't a huge cadre of people um, doing it, uh, you know, at, along with me. So thank you very much. Very helpful. And I'll, I'll, I will be in touch with you. Appreciate your answers. So, Brandon. Yes, sir. Who do we got in the queue? Uh, Deborah Armstrong. Hang on. Give me one moment. And what I'm going to ask folks is if you could just, with regard to questions, is, is um, you know, just so we can get as many as you can, is just say where you, what would be probably helpful is just say who you are, what city and state you're from, ask your question as quickly as you can, and then we'll give our speakers just a minute or two to, to answer, and we'll try to go as far as we can. Okay, Deborah Armstrong, you are allowed to ask your question. You can hear me okay now? There yep. we go. Okay, excellent. I'm in Silicon Valley, California. It's not a city. It's Santa Clara County. Um, as funding for our general public transit decreases, paratransit services are also going to decrease in quality. Is there anything that you can advise us consumers to do to reduce that from happening so much? I will mute now. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of a sensitive issue for us. So we are um, um, barred, you know, uh, by by statute from intervening too much in uh, the operations and um, scheduling and routing of transit agencies. So the level of transit, you know, what it looks like, the frequency of service, um, you know, is appropriately a, a local decision. Um, ideally, um, there should be a very um, robust um, opportunity for uh, public involvement and in, in shaping a, a local system based on needs. So I think, you know, definitely, I think as John said, there, there you know, there's likely um, an advisory committee or some type of um, feedback mechanism for um, providing, um, you know, input into decisions that affect the disability community. So I would, I would start there, um, you know, in your um, advocacy role. Um, I think, you know, you do definitely raise a good point that when um, transit service um, fixed route is cut, um, there's often um, a corollary um, reduction to paratransit, right? Because that's the way it's it's supposed to be. Uh, paratransit's supposed to be a complement um, to fixed route, and and not necessarily, you know, serve an area that's that's larger or serve um, on a more frequent basis. So um, I think definitely, I think you know, you can um, you know find the um, the right people at the local level and and raise those issues but it's you know it's definitely a, a concern especially now um, you know in the covid in, in environment but as I said um, you know we are happy to see that a lot of agencies are ramping up and um, you know getting back to, to some um, normalcy 
Okay, um, Sheila Cushman, you are allowed to ask your question. Hi there, thank you. Um, first, a comment. I would like to make sure that things like Uber and Lyft are um, compliant also in the fact that, for example, um, air fresheners and stuff aren't used in them because some people can't breathe it. I have multiple chemical sensitivity, and I would just like to add that as a comment for any um, going forward with rulemaking stuff and um, um, added things that get done. I wanted to make sure that I heard something right, and that is, did did John, did you say that paratransits are not allowed to um, be only for medical or essential services while regular para, regular transit is not? And then I have another question, which is um, right now I'm in Oakland, California, and um, we have drop-off only buses sometimes because only 10 people are allowed per bus. I don't know if the signage is audible in any way. I haven't tried to ride a bus since March. And I have tried to ask the board of our AC transit system and our um, AC transit advisory committee and our AC transit um, accessibility staff, whether those signs are somehow able to be known by the blind and I have not gotten an answer and I will definitely sit on them, but what recommendations might you have? And I can mute now. And, and I'll take okay. the, the first, John, I'll take the first piece of that. Um, okay, sure. Since it relates to COVID and then um, turn it over to you quickly. Um, so the, um, yes, so we do have an, an FAQ um, on our coronavirus webpage on um, trip, um, purpose restrictions, where we say clearly that agencies cannot limit paratransit trips during this time to medical uh, trips or any other types of trips that they deem essential. So they can encourage um, riders to, to, to limit their trips, but they need to provide um, any trip, regardless of purpose, um, as long as the, the fixed route is is running and this is the paratransit that uh, complements the, the fixed routes. So the regs are just, they're very clear that agencies cannot apply trip purpose restrictions. And um, again, we haven't waived um, any ADA requirements during this event. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important too to understand what we mean when we say paratransit because the industry throws that term around a lot and they don't always mean what it means under the, the law. Um, so paratransit is not a synonym for any form of demand responsive service. There's an awful lot of rural areas who operate a demand responsive service only. They call it paratransit, but it's not. It's demand responsive and it's not subject to any of the paratransit service or eligibility criteria. Um, paratransit only exists where you have a fixed route system. It's a safety net for those people whose disabilities prevent them from using the fixed route system. Um, so I just want to make sure that you know, we're, we're all talking from the, from the same page. Um, you know, I, there, there is supposed to be a means by which information is communicated, uh, you know, in, in, in forms other than print, um, you know, that, that might require you that you identify yourself as someone who can't read the sign. Um, but you know, that's, 
I don't think that's something that we've come across really um, at all, it, you know, whether or not you, it, 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 it sounds like something that the advisory committee should be, you know, advising the transit system of that, hey, when people get on this bus, if it's a drop-off only bus, they are going to need to know that because um, we don't want to strand anybody, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, there's there, there's nothing really in the regs that, that speaks to that other than the, the general requirement to make information available in accessible formats. All right, next question. Okay, um, Donna Browning, you are allowed to ask your question. Okay, um, so how can, can can we get a hold of these FA, FAQ documents? Um, because my paratransit did limit what people could do. And the other thing, um, um, during the COVID event, our, our um, trip's supposed to be shared. And if there is any change in policies in um, our system, aren't they supposed to be sent out uh, to people written out in a document for people to see? Okay, um, and I'll, I'll take these. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we've got all of the um, FAQs. They're in HTML format. Um, they're on our dedicated um, FTA coronavirus uh, webpage. And I know I'm sure that Ron can, uh, we could uh, put it in the chat or, or send it out. But if you just Google federal transit coronavirus, um, it'll bring you to that page. And then there's the um, link to the to the FAQs. Um, so um, you asked a question about um, shared rides. Um, so I, I know that there are agencies that are obviously um, employing social distancing measures. Um, many have been able to because ridership is, is so light. Um, not really an ADA issue, I, you know, paratransit, again, I think as John has um, emphasized so well, is um, public transit, right, just as much as, as fixed route is. And it is by nature a, a, a shared ride service. So, um, you know, at a federal level, we're not, you know, dictating um, how many people um, can be in a van at the, at the same time, uh, for example. Um, you know, just like um, the department's not, uh, you know, dictating um, uh, airplane um, uh, capacity, for example. So very much, um, you know, a safety rather than a um, civil rights issue and one that you would want to raise um, to your um, agency. Um, I think the, the last part of your, your question involved um, written policies um, or any um, notice of policy changes. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the regulations um, don't um, explicitly, and they're very detailed, um, but they don't explicitly um, have uh, requirements for uh, notification um, for the most part. Um, there's actually not a requirement, interestingly, for policies themselves to be in, in writing. So that's something that we, um, you know, kind of struggle with sometimes during our reviews um, because we, we you know we want to know what the what the official policy is and we want to see it in writing. And um, it's not always not always there. So the answer is 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 from an ADA perspective, probably there's not a, an explicit requirement, but it would definitely be something that you would want to you know go back to your agency, go back to again that advisory group or 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 um, 
you know, the other, um, you know, mechanism that's been set up to seek input and um, raise your concerns and, and um, you know, get, get the answers there. Awesome. Just to let you guys know, you have about 16 minutes left. Yeah, I'd like to take about three more questions because I want to reserve just a few minutes at the end. So go it. ahead. Area code 626, you're allowed to ask your question. Yeah, this is Mitch Pomerantz, Pasadena, California. Can I be heard? Yep, you're, you're on. Very good. Very good. Um, <laughs> the American Council of the Blind went on record several years ago. I helped draft the resolution that asked or called upon the Department of Transportation to harmonize its service animal regulations with those of the Department of Justice, which um, we were very much involved in helping uh, amend. Uh, at the time, I served on uh, our Metro Disability Advisory Committee for the County of Los Angeles, and this was a real issue. And when I did ADA training, I used to tell people that uh, you can bring your your uh, service or emotional support monkey on the bus, but when you get off the bus and get in, go to the restaurant, you have to leave it at the door. So I'm wondering if if the Department of Transportation will at some point get around to adopting the Department of Justice uh, regulations uh, regarding service animals. Thank you. Um, there's a number of reasons why that hasn't happened. Um, you know, one of them being that, you know, we haven't really been in a rulemaking mode for the last couple of years. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I do think the department missed an opportunity when it issued its NPRM on, uh, under the Air Carrier Access Act to do that. Uh, they should have probably done it also for DOT's ADA rules, but for whatever reason, uh, that didn't happen. Um, and I do not know why that's the case. Uh, but folks within DOT are aware of, of the need to do that, and that's all I can say at this point. We hear you, and we're doing what we can uh, with what we've got to work with. <laughs> okay. Hi, Al. You were able to ask your question. Hello. Thank you so much for the presentation. Um, so my concern um, is um, I'm from King County in, in Washington State, and my issue is that so with the state regulation, what can we do as citizens when we run into a situation where the state regulations call for a paratransit or a paratransit decides to encourage social distancing and have one person per van, but the overflow service that works with the paratransit service um, sardines everybody and and then when we call to complain that we want to social distance, they tell us to to reserve our ride for a later or earlier time. But, you know, some of us work or have specific appointments where we can't change these times. And what ends up happening is that when we do change the time, say, 3.30 p.m. to 3 p.m., um, so we can have an earlier pickup and thus try to avoid um, writing with someone else, um, what happens is that we end up waiting for half an hour um, for the rest of the people um, to get on the bus, on the, on the vehicle, and then we get on our way. So um, it's, it's a kind of a sneaky way to, 
you know, get us all together and I got to save money. But at the same time, I feel like it's not, um, you know, not following this um, state regulations on social distancing. And it's, it's becoming a, a very frustrating issue. Yeah, and I, I think that you, you know, you definitely raise a, a, a legitimate concern. Um, you know, it's something um, on a personal level that, you know, we're, we're all, you know, dealing with right now. And, um, uh, you know, I know that I'm transit dependent and uh, um, I'm sure that a lot of you are as well. And um, it, yeah, it's definitely something that, that um, we're all, you know, we're all thinking about. Um, as I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, you know, it's, it's, it, while your, your concern is, is, is valid, it's from an, from an ADA perspective at the, at the federal level, um, there's just, there's not a place that it would be, um, addressed. Um, again, you know, paratransit, just like any type of transit is, is public transit, it's shared ride, um, agencies under the, you know, ADA, um, would, would be allowed to, you know, fill fill every seat, the fill the securement area. Um, some agencies um, have a lot more capacity right now um, than others um, because um, ridership is is light in certain communities, so they've got more leeway to uh, get creative with social distancing and how they dispatch vehicles. Um, but as this, um, you know, pandemic hopefully, um, you know, winds down. Um, and we get back to normal operations, then I think there's going to be a gradual, you know, filling of those seats. So um, again, you know, not not an ADA issue, but you you um, have added a piece here where there's a state um, requirement for social distancing. So that would tell me that you would want to pursue it at the at the state level and um, get in contact with. Um, um, state officials ask the question, and and again talk to your um, advisory group and and your and your your agency. So I think um, you know I th I will say I th I know that our recipients are um, also challenged, right? Like like we are as 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 riders, um, and I know that um, overwhelmingly um, they are very concerned about their customers in this environment, and I I really truly believe that you know people are. Uh, for the most part, doing the best that they can. But I would definitely, you know, encourage you to to, to um, talk with them and, and talk with the um, appropriate state and local officials. Um, as is always the case with transportation, we never have enough time to get to everybody. We have time for one more question, then I'd like to just have a, a couple of closing remarks. So uh, we have one more question. Okay, Jim Mako, you are allowed to ask your question. Yes, my name is Jamaica Miller, and I'm from Athens, Georgia. My question is, for people that are going to use cars for, um, for, the, for the transportation, what kind of funding, funding do, we, do we need to look at for that kind of uh, transportation system? You mean for using uh, sedans like Uber and Lyft in paratransit? I'm not sure I understand the question. Or I'm I'm trying to tell you I'm trying to say that I have a transportation system going, and I needed to know what kind of where where my transportation fits for one thing, and for another, what the um, what funding I should go for. So. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, that would be more of a question for our program management office. We don't deal in our office with um, with grants. Um, we deal with you know what happens with the money that goes with them. Um, so if you go to transit.dot.gov, um, you can find all sorts of information about FTA and the grant programs and and things like that, um, which which may help point you in the right direction. But I I don't really know the answer to that question. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Before before we wrap up, I'd just like to uh, take a minute to acknowledge and thank uh, our speakers. Uh, Don and John, you guys were um, a wealth of information, um, and you not only did you really help, I think, clarify some of what the ADA is, and and also, frankly, what it what it cannot do, and what you as regulators cannot do, uh, which I want to come back to in a second. You also provided amazing levels of information about. Uh, COVID-19 and, and it, in terms of the transit's response and what we can expect and, and what we can't expect uh, from a federal standpoint. And uh, I'm just amazed at how many unique questions that I had not thought about that people raised. And I really appreciate uh, the information that you provided uh, for folks um, you know, about those issues, which are very unique. And you know, nobody thought about this stuff before March. So thank you so much. Uh, before I wrap this up, I just want to offer Karen an, an opportunity if you wanted to add any comments, and then I'll take us home. Karen, I, as as Ron said, I'm just I'm just really uh, grateful to have been here and to have been able to uh, listen to our speakers because it really your your knowledge and your wow your commitment and just you know really in-depth uh understanding of these things is is phenomenal and it's not i probably shouldn't say this but it's not something i'm so used to hearing from um people at at, at you know at transit agencies or in in any governmental level not to be too uh unfriendly about it but you really the two of you really really were stunning to us and just so very, 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 very helpful. So thank you. Thank you. That's really what I want to say. Awesome. Well, and Ron, I just want to say thank you too. It's been a really been an honor to, to um, be involved in, in this inaugural event. So we, we really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. I don't think it could have gone any better unless we had three more hours, but then you guys <laughs> would probably be getting kind of tired out there on the East coast. So I want to just kind of close up with what I heard. And, and, you know, aside from all the details, I'm one of those people that thinks about things at the big picture level, um, not too much into the details of the, and you guys are, thank goodness. The thing that I really heard, and, and it's been reiterated again and again and again, is federal law is great. Federal law gives us the, the opportunity to, to have access to services without, you know, in theory, without discrimination, uh, without without bias, you know, we have equal opportunity to use the public transit that's out there. But the thing that federal that the federal laws do not give, and that the federal government cannot give, and this has been hit again and again and again, is it cannot replace what happens locally. And you know, one of the reasons that we had the transportation forum last July at our conference. And one of the things that I'm taking away from this conversation here 
is the critical importance of advocacy that happens at the local level within local communities by local people with their local transit administ their local transit agencies their local planning organizations and, and in some cases with their state departments of transportation this is why we're here this is why you're here we need uh, as an organization as folks with disabilities we need advocates in every community who know the law and who also know how it works in their community. And this is something that we as a transportation committee and certainly with environmental access as well are going to be focused on is how do we give you members, friends, advocates in the community, the tools that you need, the knowledge that you need and the skills that you need to go have those advocacy conversations because they are local conversations. They can't happen anywhere but your hometowns. So this was a great way to start, um, just to continue to raise that bar and to create that awareness. But we are going to continue to have these conversations on a variety of issues. And next month, um, and, and I know uh, Becky, or I'm sorry, Sheila, you are on this call. If you'd like to say a couple of words about what you're going to do next month, we are going to continue the conversation around public transportation uh, to uh, start to raise that awareness. So, Sheila, do you want to just kind of talk a little bit about what you're going to do next month? We don't have all the details fleshed out, fleshed out as yet, but it's going to be a very interactive call without any guest presenters about the blindness community and public transportation. Why do you care about it? Why don't you take it? What would it take for you to engage in the use of public transportation? We want to sort of dive into those elements because our society and our, our culture of late has not been very welcoming or very secure for people who are blind and low vision to do this. So that's what we're going to talk about next month. Um, I love it and I do it and I want to encourage others to, but I want to know why they won't, why they can't, and what we can do at the local and the ACB and the federal level to, to make this more attractive. And Excellent. maybe we can't, but we're going to talk about it next month. Well, that, that sounds like a fantastic uh, program. We're going to leave it here. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on our first call. Please uh, provide any feedback that you'd like to. Uh, we'll be putting some information out uh, in the chat. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Facebook group, uh, through our email channels. Um, you should feel free to do the same. Uh, tell us what you think. Tell us what you heard. Tell us what you'd like to hear in the future uh, so that we can all learn together. Thank you again to everybody, to our speakers, to the folks out on ACB Radio. We stand adjourned. Thank you.